What is Peace Brain? Peace Brain is the synergistic connection between our mental and emotional bodies, blending the electrical power of the mind with the magnetic force of the heart. Listen and explore how to create unity worldwide as we blend science and metaphysics and open our hearts and minds to the possibilities of peace on earth and create the life we are each destined for. Featured guests range from angel communicators to zoologists and everything in between. Now here is your host, Dr. Gail Lash. Hello and welcome to the Peace Brain Show. This is your host, Dr. Gail Lash, and today we're going to have an amazing show. As always, I open with a quote, and then I have a transformative meditation at the end, so please stay tuned for all of that. Today we're going to do a little differently. Um, I'm having, my guest is Nevin Lash, who is a landscape architect and zoo designer. He's also my husband, <laughs> going to be on the phone, and we'll introduce him in a minute. Um, but he is going to interview me, Gail Lash. So we're going to talk about peace, as always, peace in zoos, peace in the world, peace in society, what that means, how we can achieve it, all those wonderful things. So stay tuned for our amazing conversation. Um, And as always, as I said, I open the show with a quote, and this quote is from Ralph Marston, and he says, Venture beyond what you know you can do, and soon you'll know you can do more. If you feel stuck, the way out is not to hope for someone who will come along and make it all better. The way out is to be the motivated, passionate, purposeful person who will indeed make things much better. When you don't know how, take it upon yourself to learn. When you're not sure of what to do, work through your choices and your priorities until you're able to aim your focus in a specific direction. Life can be complicated, yet you have have what it takes to figure it out. Life can be challenging, and yet you have the outstanding ability to work through those challenges. From the most difficult situations, you can build your biggest successes. Beyond your comfort zone is your achievement zone. Step boldly and confidently into that achievement zone and enthusiastically do the work it demands of you. Discover how very much you can do by making the real unwavering commitment to get it done. I really like this motivation because it says, it reminds us that we have this capacity within all of us to to handle life, to handle life's challenges, to not only handle it, but to make it amazing and beautiful and productive and successful just by going that, you know, going the extra mile, taking um, taking a step towards your goal and keep keep walking, keep stepping towards the goals. So... Um, That's what we're going to be talking about. I figured that quote actually worked really well with today because we're going to talk about how can each of us, not only individually but as a society and specifically with zoos and aquariums, which is what Nevin and I work with um, extensively, how can they and any business or any person help make the world a little better place? So I want to introduce my guest today, and as I said, it's Nevin Lash, uh, he is, as I said, my husband. We've been married for over 25 years. Thank you, Nevin, <laughs> for putting up with me <laughs> and making it a joy. And um, he's a landscape architect. He has worked for many years over, hmm, gosh, over 30 years, I guess, um, designing zoological parks and nature parks. And he's extremely talented about listening to people and bringing people together to find out their dreams and their visions and then putting it on paper and then constructing construction documents and then watching it uh, and helping it be built so that it is what they all that they desired and more. So I'm really happy to have him on the show because he obviously knows very much about creating peace and harmony through animal areas and natural uh, areas of nature and how we can commune with nature and bring that beautiful synergistic um, respect and love and dignity into our world. 
So you can find out more about Nevin Lash at at uh, the web our website business website, which is Ursa International, and that's U R S A, and then International spelled out dot O R G, and Ursa of course is the the bear in the sky, Ursa Minor and Ursa Major. That's the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper. <laughs> so Ursa means bear in Latin. So again, the website is ursainternational.org. Welcome, Nevin, to the Peace Brain Show. Well, thanks, Gail. I'm glad you invited <laughs> me in. <laughs> so I needed to, to have a conversation, and you were the most logical person to have a conversation with about peace and and interviewing me. <laughs> so, so what what do you want me to start with? Well, let's let's make sure that it's clear. I'm interviewing you, and uh, that there are questions that I'd like to ask you because, you know, you've been talking to people for for months and years now, and always so probing and always so comfortable. So the idea of being both comfortable and probing. Is a uh, is a goal for me today, because I really want you to to defend how zoos and aquariums can be places of peace. It just doesn't seem to roll off the tongue for a lot of people. A lot of people have that problem because it really isn't just um, a very clear indication. I guess we're all caught up in peace in the in the seventies and the sixties, where where peace was bring them home, let's not have war. Now, how does that relate to zoos? What, is, what does this piece look like in, uh, in today's standards? Wow, what a question. <laughs> okay, thanks. Um, first of all, I'll refer to Louise Diamond, who wrote a book, um, The Peace Book, 108 Simple Ways to Create Peace in the World. And she worked in war zones around the world, uh, helping create peace in Israeli and um, and uh, Ireland, Irish conflict, etc. But it's um, it's interesting because in the '60s, as she points out, that was when you know peace, love, hippie movement happened. And as you said, it was against the Vietnam the Vietnam War and other wars. And that that war isn't the the answer to peace. And I and I agree that's still that's still relevant. In fact, um, a couple of people now on the debate stage for our presidential <laughs> candidacy have talked about that war isn't the answer. We need to solve the social economic problems that are actually behind war, behind strife and and uh, people rebelling against whatever their government is or against their society. So war just creates more war and more more devastation. It doesn't really get down to the negotiations of how people can live and how people can solve their issues, which are the the complaints that they have that create that are the basis of any conflict. So the question, so as Louise said, is war, peace is not a dirty word. Peace is actually a really active verb. It's not just a state of mind or a state of being. It is a a way of taking action and creating those. Those opportunities, those um, those opportunities to talk about what what's not working, what needs to change, how we can create a society or an, an you know an issue solve an issue that is not working for whatever constituents or whatever um, residents of an area that it's that it's causing this strife and conflict. So. Peace is something that is not just the hippie movement of the 60s and 70s, but it really is today's goal for for creating a, a global unity around the planet because we are a global unity now, a global human humanity. We can no longer, you know, nation states is fine and nation states have their their Oh, their place, obviously. Um, and I, you know, we live here in the United States, and I love the United States. I think we're an amazing country. We actually have these. It's a whole nother discussion, <laughs> but uh, but in the Baha'i Faith, it talks about that the United States, that America, will be 
the spiritual leader of the world to bring peace to the world. Uh, we are we have this unique ability to see that diversity can be brought together as unity through diversity. And what I mean by that is it takes people of all different walks of life and all different viewpoints to come together and to have discussions and to come up with solutions that are best. Because if you have just one way of looking at things, yeah, your solution may work, but it may not encompass the entire, all the details and the entire complexity of an issue. Whereas if people of diverse backgrounds come together, that they can look at an issue from different points of view and then come up with solutions that work from all angles. So that said, getting back to your, and I know this is a very long answer. I was hoping um, you would get to this. <laughs> <laughs> getting back to the zoos and aquariums and nature parks and botanical gardens and all of these natural places, how do they relate to creating peace? And um, and I'm going to say go beyond you know, the, the dialogue of war is is in this way, and and this is complex as well. So I'll say a broad answer, and then we'll get into details perhaps in a moment. But it's really about those natural places. We forget that not only are we one humanity around the planet, that we're economically dependent on each other, we are one biological species, um, you know, we can breed with each other all around the world. If you're talking about biological species, um, the definition of species is that they can breed and produce fertile offspring. So clearly humanity can do that no matter what country you're from. Uh, and zoos and aquariums are based on um, and any live animal collections or, or natural parks that bring people and human and nature together are based on honoring the diversity of the of the wild, of the natural areas, and we forget we are part of that. We forget that humanity is not just an urban um, urban resident uh, in the urban jungles of our of our cities around the planet, but that we are connected to the wildlife. We're connected to the plants. We're connected. We're so dependent. And you know, we could talk about climate change. We could talk about economics. Um, all of these are actually relevant to zoos and aquariums, all of these discussions, because it's one big ball of wax. <laughs> it's not, you know, we tend to separate things out as human beings. But zoos and aquariums are very wonderful in concentrating on conservation, on working with exhibiting their animals in appropriate social groups, and we're talking here about accredited zoos and aquariums. There's a wonderful organization in the United States and Canada called AZA, uh, Association of Zoos and Aquariums, aza.org. You can go to it and find out more about it. And there are about 235 or so accredited zoos and aquariums in that organization. And they have high standards. They have to do exhibit animals in with the well-being of the animal as primary driver, primary focus. So they're in naturalistic habitats. They are in... They are conspecific, um, you know, they're in their groups of, of social groups that are appropriate to that species. They are um, in multi-species exhibits, like you would find in an ecological setting in, in nature. So they teach people the importance of nature. They teach people the importance of seeing the animals as our brothers and sisters, if you will. They also do conservation work around the world in those countries where the animals come from and work with humans and work with, um, you know, uh, residents of those areas to help better conserve the animals under their care or that are in the wild near them. So zoos and aquariums are already creating peace as far as conservation goes. But they tend to do what they do in their conservation uh, areas around the world where they actually work with, let's say, a village or a city and work with the school and teach the school kids about animals, just as they do here in the United States. But they also will build a school. They also will look at the economic problems in an area that may be causing slash-and-burn agriculture or causing trees to be cut down uh, to pay for medicines for humans to be able to go to a doctor because they don't have any money. Uh, they do that in their in their areas in other countries, but they don't translate that, by and large, uh, 
to the, their visitor coming to their zoo or aquarium. So that's what I would like to see. And let me stop and let you ask some more questions. <laughs> Thanks for uh, for letting me give you a very long answer. Well, that, that did take us uh, all over the world a couple of times, I think. But um, but I think it really did get at the point that there is a connection to for peace in zoos and in natural settings. I think we learn best in those sort of settings. Uh, it's it's a informal education is is a uh, wonderful way to learn, um, and it allows you to to look and feel and ask questions that are appropriate not ones that are in the book, not the ones that you thought of before you went to the place, but actually ones that are uh, site-specific. So in that regard, when you go to a zoo, what are the types of things that you feel like you are learning? What kind of things can you learn at a zoo, not in a program, but in a, in a context of, of a visitor coming to the zoo for the first time, perhaps with their small family? So... I'll answer, but I also want you to answer because you are a zoo designer and you put in so many times. This isn't my show. The- this is your show, and I think <laughs> we want to hear about no, you. No. I, and I and I will t- I will answer, but I want to point out that this is what designing zoo is all about. It is about designing that public space that the visitor can walk through with their family or by themselves to learn about the mission of the zoo, whatever that uh, might be. And, of course, the overall mission, as we said, is conservation of wildlife and, uh, and the welfare of the animals on the planet and wanting to preserve species uh, from extinction. So this is, and, of course, I'll back up for a second and say that scientists now at the IUCN, the International Union of Concerned no, Conservation of Nature, I've forgotten what IUCN stands for exactly. It's an international body. Um, and it has said that there's there's a possibility of, by, I think, 2050 of around a million, one million species going extinct on the planet. So we're at this time of crisis. So I believe that zoos, you know, what I want visitors to learn, what I can learn now is, and this is just a, a beautiful plug for zoos and aquariums, really, is that you can go in now and with these, um, first of all, they're beautiful spaces. They are a place that will uplift the heart, that you walk into that provides um, a place to be able to see animals that you could never see unless you actually took trips to places around the world. And they are exhibited in beautiful scenarios with lots of greenery, with lots of color, with lots of, um, as I said, their natural habitats, trying you know, to mimic as best one can in different climates the places that the animal would have come from in their natural setting. So you can learn about the, the biology of the animal, about its habitat, where it comes from, about perhaps how many there are left in the world. Um, sometimes zoos will talk about poaching and talk about the wildlife trade and talk about the, the threats, if you will, to this species from uh, human threats, from uh, maybe um, mudslides and volcanoes and, you know, natural threats to their habitat in the wild uh, so that the visitor can learn what's going on with that animal and who it is and why it's important in the biological system of life. And that is a really valuable Mm, that's a valuable asset for zoos to provide to, as I said, these urban populations, particularly people who may not ever make it to see this animal in live form. And there are studies that have been out there that say, um, and I don't have them on the tip of my tongue, but that have, have studied and said, you know, when a human sees a live animal, there's this connection, there's this empathy, there's this... Um, compassion and understanding and connection with that animal greater than if you were just watching a, a screen, if you were watching a TV show or or your phone or tablet with a, a YouTube or a wildlife program. Those are important avenues to teach and to show what animals are all about, but it's that live animal, it's that personal connection, even if you can't touch the tiger, <laughs> you can see the tiger within 
15 feet of you, and uh, or if it's back farther in its natural habitat at a, at a zoo, you know, it may be 50 feet away from you. But nevertheless, seeing that live animal move and, and uh, do natural behaviors is a great connection for the human being. Um, so... And then also I will say that there are, there are many studies for many decades have pointed out that natural settings, even just a park or green, green space anywhere, um, again, does biological wonders for our human body. It, it lowers your cortisol rate, which is your stress hormones. It uh, improves your thinking. It, it, uh, you know, it, people, children learn better in a natural setting. There's all these studies out there that says when we're out there in these green spaces and in these natural settings, we actually, you know, our heart rate goes down. We, we get calmer. We get more peaceful. <laughs> so, so these natural settings are really important. So for me, I would love to see not only visitors be able to do all of the things they can do in zoos and aquariums now, I would like to see a few things happen, and, and I'll just point out three things right now, and that is I would like to see people learn a little bit more about the connections between humans and wildlife. So, for example, zoos do talk about the wildlife trade and poaching and um, maybe war on elephants that's happening. Uh, 96 elephants is a is a great example of that where there's an organization that has has done research and, and uh, puts out there that there are 96 elephants being killed every day in the wild. And that's horrible. But it's really for the ivory and to sell the ivory off for guns to support war. So, again, we get back to war. So those are talked about but not in detail. It's like, well, what are the other human conflict issues that are dealing with why is the war being perpetuated, not only just greed for dollars, which are, you know, for money, which is usually why most wars are happening. It's economic reasons, but there's more details to it. I'd like to see Susan Aquarians be able to learn more about the issues around the planet. I'd also like for them to be able to be places of peace. And what I mean by that is, and that's a longer discussion, but just in brief, is as I just pointed out, natural studies in natural settings talk about it that it it makes you calmer. I'd like to see us actually invite the visitor to be calmer, to be quiet, to be at peace as they walk around the zoo. Now, obviously, families come with lots of little kids that want to run around and make noise and scream and yell and jump and play, and that's fantastic. And I'd also like to have areas of quiet in the zoo that invite people to to reflect, to read the sign and look at the animal and find out more about that animal and then maybe do a meditation or maybe tune into the animal, maybe learn how to communicate with our heart to the animal. And the third thing is I'd actually like to see, and we started to design this at a zoo in Sweden um, when we were working with them there, is to have individual tours. And what I mean by that is, you know, ecotourism is my background and what ecotourism is all about is about having a guide that then takes a small group of people out into the wild, out into nature, and interprets for them or leads them on an experience. And I really think zoos and aquariums would benefit from that, from not just a self-guided tour, which is what we have now, but an actual tour with a guide that helps set the stage and set the experience for the visitor. So I'll stop there. Well, that, that leads me to thinking about how how we can improve zoos. And so that, that personal connection between, just like you say, in the ecotourism world, host and guest, we have our scientists and, and caregivers at the zoo, and we have our visitors at the zoo. And it's so rare that they interconnect. And when they do, it's magic. You know, just that's when kids perk up. They stop thinking about themselves so much and start thinking about the animals in a way that they may never have thought before because they're just children. And they're not reading the signs, and mom is just looking for the, the right name to call the animal It's uh, because she's not quite sure herself. And dad, well, he'd rather just go find a beer and sit down. But 
we want to offer all those things We're to We're uh, aren't we? <laughs> I think that's going to be the way it is. Um, but but I remember when we were at the elephant exhibit that we just opened at, at Zoo Atlanta, and the keeper was bringing down some hay for the elephants, and um, and everyone sort of gathered to see what's going on, and then he turns around and starts telling the folks what's going on and how much hay they eat and what their daily lives are all about, and and you start getting a, a better understanding of not just the biology, what the you know how heavy they are, and you know who they can breed with and who they can't, um, but but more what are the what makes them happy? You know, I think we're we're doing a lot of thinking and talking in zoos about how can an animal go beyond just surviving in a zoo and enduring the uh, the, the being captive all the way to thriving. We'd like these animals to thrive. We'd like to give them what they need to thrive. And so, in that regard, um, how can we how can we better communicate that? And how can we make sure people understand that the the reason that they're at the zoo, the reason they should be supporting zoos, is because we're really hoping that animals in our care uh, can live great existence, uh, a wonderful existence, within a zoo setting. And what do we have to do to make that happen? Well, first of all, um, I would say that Aquariums and zoos are places where animal welfare, as I said, is paramount. And and one reason, and because to exist, uh, you have to have you have to have animals, <laughs> and that means you have to breed animals. That means you have to produce animals. That means you have to keep your collections going. And the AZA has great has taken great care over the last almost hundred years of putting together these species survival plans and these taxonomic groups and um, advisory groups and and ones that do look at the whole collection of, of species around the world uh, in these accredited institutions and exchange animals so that you have the 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 best breeding the the not only genetically but um, you know that will be keep the species in in the human care uh, going so that we don't have to take animals from the wild. And that's really the goal. And many species have been dictated that you cannot take any from the wild, and unless, of course, maybe they're rescues. Um, right now there's laws that elephants cannot be taken from the wild anymore, um, and that's a good thing. Uh, it is a problem, I guess, if you know, finding places in their native countries where if they're having to be culled, if there's some human conflict or habitat loss or fires or or they're stranded animals, they have to go into rescue centers. Uh, So that's a whole other discussion. But but really it's about that welfare is the the key and, and that animals... That are that you would see in an aquarium or zoos are really born in captivity. Now I will say though that aquariums still do fish <laughs> for fish. Uh, in other words, that they still get a lot of their fish from the wild, and that is a um, that's a whole other discussion. But in many ways, sustainable fisheries obviously is is the key here. Of how do we how do we sustain our marine populations of fish? And again, the aquariums are teaching those lessons. So it's. Mm, I want to get back onto your point. Remind me of your point. Well, I'm thinking about you know, how can we at a zoo get into the deeper questions of you know, why are these animals here, and you know what what you can learn from the animals, and um, you know how it is that. A zoo visit can bring out the uh, the best in a family situation, and that they take home something, and that the animal is uh, no longer seen as an object, but as individuals and perhaps um, someone that can teach them things. So that's a huge <laughs> that's a huge leap um, into 
how can people take well, home? And of course, this is this is the job of zoos and aquariums. You know, the relevancy of having animals under human care is always under question. Uh, there are organizations, obviously, out there saying, "Why do you have animals in?" And we'll use the word captivity because they are captive. They're also under human care. But as I pointed out, most of them are bred in in this captive situation, in this human care situation. And even our wildlife parks, some I, I won't go into it in, in detail, but, for example, in South Africa, most of South Africa is fenced. Um, wildlife is managed by humans, and uh, and that, you know, and we can argue whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, uh, the parks right around in Nairobi and Kenya are fenced, and so it's, we are, humans are taking, have taken over the planet, and we need to not manage the wild, but we need to allow there to be wild places. This is always the challenge. And for a family coming to a zoo or aquarium to learn about wildlife, really we need to get into why is there habitat loss around the world? What are the issues that we've got animals in human care in, in an urban setting in you know Atlanta or New York or Louisville or, or San Francisco? Why do we have animals in our urban settings that belong in Africa or Asia or or um you know some iced <laughs> some glacial uh, mountainous area uh, that doesn't exist where we live so this is connecting humans has always been the challenge through educational programs and getting that empathy and that connection as we talked about but Having people take action, then you can debate about what actions we want people to take. You know, obviously, giving money to conservation programs is one, but but how can we each make a difference is really the bigger question. And and that you know, zoos have gotten into all of the wonderful things of recycle, reuse, um, discussions about plastics, and and what's happening in our oceans with the plastic. Um, islands that are out there and single-use plastics particularly, straws, water bottles, etc. All of those things can be taught and talked about. But it's really where I would like to see zoos and aquariums go and that would make it even more relevant, I think, to me and perhaps even to the generation that's called the millennials who are really questioning whether zoos and aquariums even should exist is the educational value of not only, as I said, the, the the connections human to animal that is made in that personal seeing a live animal that's very different from the screen, but what are the issues of humanity that can be solved by humanity that can help the natural world thrive in its natural setting and, of course, in our urban settings as well. So it's those are the questions of... I would like to see families be exposed more to what human issues are happening around the world, not just about conflict with animals, but what makes us consume more, for example. And when we consume more objects, more things, more production of things, we're using more minerals, more resources, we're mining the natural habitats. We are bringing, um, we're impacting the animals because they live in these areas. So it's it's more about how can we change our mindset of society. We here in the United States are a very consumptive society and all of Western life, I suppose, is like that. On a global scale, we keep thinking economics, that more is better, that we have to produce more. We produce things that go out of either vogue or ob- become obsolete within a year or less. <laughs> And you know we always have to buy the next best iPhone or the the um, the next computer or or that new tennis shoes, uh, even though my old ones may be good, or or I have to get the next new car rather than getting mine repaired. Whatever it is, we are very consumptive society, and these are the things I would like to see zoos and aquariums talk about. At least offer the community its visitorship, <laughs> um, which would be a, a should be a diverse clientele um 
if they're doing their job right, <laughs> and that they, we can have discussions on how humans can be less impactful on the earth. We can have a more gentle impact. We can work more within the natural systems. We can change our mindset of, you know, keeping up with the Joneses or, or bigger is better or more is better and teach our children to actually, there's a wonderful whole um, a whole way of working with children called nature play, which is basically taking, taking natural objects and getting kids to dream and play and make up stories and do things with sticks and rocks and leaves and anything natural. And, you know, when I used to run out and play in the woods and play by the lake, my imagination would go wild. And they've actually done, again, children's studies to say that kids are more creative, kids are more, um, oh, I've forgotten the exact uh, results exactly. But, but the point of bringing kids out into nature actually helps your brain development, actually helps you in various cognitive skills. So allow these natural connections to permeate through society and really influence day-to-day life on the family that visits the zoo. I'd like to see zoos talk about that. So you really think that a zoo can act to society um, like our educational systems or even better? This intrigues me because I think that a lot of what we hear about at zoos is the negatives, you know, and when people, I'm I'm not so sure I like zoos and I'm not a big fan or this or that, but if we can impact people about the issues that that are important to them, which is, you know, having having freedom and having our... uh, the ability to to go where we want to go and um, that those places be pristine and those places be free of of commercialism and this and that. So, you know, I think there's some some good connections that you're making. Um, you know, if the zoo can be that kind of a place, I just don't know how I can we can go from where we are today to that place. Um, and I get worried when and zoo directors start talking about serving the community and doing what the community wants. Um, I'm not so sure the community knows what they want or are able to ask the questions to make a community zoo bigger than just a place with with a collection of animals. So you, I think there was a question up, in there. Yeah, you bring up a good point in that um you know Henry Ford said if I'd asked the the people what they wanted they'd say a faster and bigger uh, horse and buggy you know carriage <laughs> and not a not a car not a model T car so it's it's really about giving zoos and aquariums really being the the imagination the visionary the 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 place where these big ideas or these connections can be made that open, they bring that, those aha moments to the community, to the visitorship. And that's why I think not only talking about, as we talked about conservation in situ, which means in the actual countries they come from, the animals come from, uh, talking about those programs they're doing on the ground with, with their gorillas or cheetahs or um, some marine life with uh, different fish and corals, but really bringing that into the human, how does that impact the humans who live there? How does that impact our global um, world and and what's happening? Like the Amazon is burning right now in Brazil, and and I really think that zoos and aquariums need to be advocates, adv- advocates to have advocacy, <laughs> to have people sign petitions to the Brazilian government to say stop burning the forest. Uh, just for palm plantations and and cattle ranches and uh, economic greed because that's the lungs of the planet. Uh, that affects all of us. It affects our weather. It affects our climate. It affects our economic system. It affects um, whether we're going to have desertification of the Amazon. And, oh, my God, if that happens, the world's in trouble. The whole world's in trouble. So it is... 
it are these bigger issues that zoos tend to shy away from of being an advocate to actually change political will or change um, the way we do things. But I really think that that's the next step, is saying, okay, what are the values of wildlife, of the planet, of the natural world? How can we teach the people who come to aquariums and zoos and any botanical gardens, natural areas, um, nature parks, etc., how can we teach them not only to connect that heartfelt feeling of being out in nature and connect and learn the biology of the animal and the conservation of the animal and to take some recycling actions, but how do we change our mindset to be in more alignment with nature um, in our technological and urban settings? So it's not about going back to the farm or living uh, in a hut or you know, necessarily growing all your own food, um, but it is learning how to walk lightly on the earth and be gentle with the earth. And those are huge. There's so many topics that fall under that broad category that zoos could educate on, that zoos could give lectures on and talks. As you mentioned, from scientists or the experts in these fields, have weekly talks for the public, have um, signs, have little places that people can go, as I said, on these kind of tours or or quiet places to learn about the different issues that are happening, the burning of the Amazon, and here, talk to your senators, write the president of Brazil, write the companies that are doing this. Um, but, But then we have to look at, again, underneath that. What's happening about that is that big agribusiness has taken over the small family farms. Um, and I don't know all the facts about Brazil, so I'm not going to pretend to know that right at the moment because I haven't done my due diligence of detailed research on that at the moment. That's, But that is a current issue that we're dealing with that needs to be addressed. Um, just as climate change is, just as fossil fuels and going to renewables, energy, zoos are starting to talk about this. But we tend to be shy away, and directors do, and I can understand. Directors are, have to get money to run zoos, and so it is, um, it's incumbent to work together with dialogue and unity and not make it be a political issue, what's happening with nature, but make it be a human issue, a humanity issue. You know, we need to, if you will, save humanity to be able to save the animals. So we need to talk about these human issues, um, and they can get down to even, as I said in one of these sessions that we just came back from the AZA with, talking about the purpose of zoos and aquariums, if we can even talk about bullying in schools. You know, the very fact that kids bully, that's the underlying issue of that is someone feels hurt, someone feels pain, someone feels not good enough that they have to bully their fellow students to feel better about themselves. And that's a mindset that we need to start discussing. And and most people would say zoos and aquariums are not a place to have that discussion. Perhaps a school would be. But I would counter to say if we feel we're not good enough and we have to bully someone, that may transfer over into, well, I'm just going to go and do that to an animal or I'm going to do that to nature. I'm going to you know, cut down all the trees in an area just because I feel superior to the wildlife or to the the plants. But it's not about feeling superior. This is the conversation that could be had. It's about how do we, again, walk lightly or in equality with nature, not in this dominance over uh, in all that we do in our urban settings, in our rural settings, in our in our lives as humanity. I'll stop there for a moment. These are big, <laughs> very big topics. Yeah. Uh, and just to stay at that level, you know, what is the purpose of a zoo, you know, and, and or aquarium? And in the parlance of the, the meeting that we had, the AZA conference, the question was, what's the why? What is the why for zoos? So, yeah, there was a great discussion, and that obviously is a dialogue that needs to continue, both with zoo and aquarium professionals, um, but also with their visitors. You know, why we need to know the why. 
for zoos and aquariums, the mission is to prevent species from extinction and to keep conservation of wildlife going around the planet uh, and to educate the human population about that these are important. It's important to have not only animals but ecological places, systems that are healthy. Uh, so animals that are healthy and systems that are ecological systems that are healthy. And this is the discussion on the deeper level of um, that we need to teach, and I'm not sure if we're teaching it all in school. Kids, if they get it in, well, they do get it in biology class, but biology class is very short, I think, in our current curriculum. And again, I'd have to talk with current teachers to find out the to find out the details on this. But we're not we're not putting biology as a primary driver. We put business and economics as a primary driver of human life. And in truth, if everybody, if we stressed biology as much as we stress economics and business, that I think we'd have a much healthier world. <laughs> I'm not just healthier, but people would know all about their bodies. You know, your bodies are miracles. You, we can heal ourselves. We can do all kinds of things that that affect well-being of humans, of our human bodies, and then to know the well-being of a, an animal, what makes it that animal thrive and healthy, and then what makes your ecosystem, your the place where the animal lives, that then cleans the water that humans drink or cleans the air that humans drink through the trees. I mean, just to be, to give a fact, if we if we planted more trees, trees could clean up a third of the carbon that's in the air around the world. I mean, just keeping the forest intact and planting trees can solve a third of our of our uh, climate crisis. So it, it, knowing the natural world and our connections to it would help us be healthier and help our cities be healthier, our, you know, putting in more green spaces, cities are realizing, and uh, in Japan they plant plants inside their office buildings. They grow their food inside office buildings because having the greenery inside actually helps worker production and keeps their mental state higher. So you achieve more as a worker. You you know, the retention rate of their worker employees is more. I mean, look at Google and Amazon and the way that they've put their workspaces together. It's all about natural environment. So it does translate to our economic systems. We just have to realize that humans are not just economics. They're actually this natural being. So we're kind of getting to the end of the show. We have like another three minutes or so that you and I can talk before the peace brain meditation. I think in that that three minutes, I want to first point out that uh, you're such a wonderful advocate for zoos and the natural world as well as uh, for for peace in a global setting. Um, It's amazing how, how you make all these connections and I really think that the more we um, have dialogue like this in places that are um, conducive for learning, conducive for uh, you know, absorbing this information and making it relevant, uh, the, the better this world is going to be. I mean, I know when we uh, when we go to the zoo and we look at a group of gorillas, the world has changed a lot about the way we see them now that we see them in natural settings in the in the tile cage it's uh it's a very different expression where where when you see them out in a grassy hillside with trees and rocks it you can see mom mothering the child and and dad looking in and making sure everyone's safe and you can start bringing that back to your own lives and see how animal lives and people's lives overlap and we've made that connection by putting them in a setting where they belong as opposed to ones that we've extracted and and put them in a in a sterile environment just so that we can keep them alive so we've really gone from uh from this basic existence to a a more natural and more uh a safer environment for them to thrive in so I want to thank you for for everything you do, and for allowing people to really see that that changes happened 
because of the ways we're thinking, but there's a lot more that we have to do as a as a society to uh, to get us through the next 50 years before another million species are are uh, go extinct. So, thank you, Gail. And, and thank uh, you, Nevin. Well, my pleasure. For, um, for designing these places and making them beautiful. And it is my and pleasure to do that. It's so much mm-hmm. better than shopping malls and office parks. <laughs> <laughs> yes. As a landscape designer, yes, exactly, landscape architect. Um, yeah, thank you for being on the Peace Brain Show. <laughs> well, I think you have um, you have a meditation for us. Yes, I do. Ah. So you can find out more about Nevin. I just want to give you his website, our our company, Ursa International. You can go to Ursa International, that's U-R-S-A, and then international spelled out, dot O-R-G, and find out more about Nevin Lash and me, Gail Lash, and our designing zoos and aquariums and natural places to bring humans and animals in harmony with each other. Um, and more of what we do. Um, and you can also find out more about me at my other company, tourismforpeace.com. Uh, you can go to that website. So so take a breath for a moment, and we're going into the Peace Brain Meditation. Hmm, lots and lots of wonderful comments. I know we could go on for a lot longer than just uh, one hour. But take a breath, and I invite everyone to settle back in your chair, get comfortable, Take a deep breath and really be present in the moment. If you want, as I usually say in the meditations, you can give yourself a grounding cord, which is an energetic, just a visualization connection between your body and the center of the planet. So I like to envision a beam of light or maybe a tree trunk or a monkey's tail (laughs) coming out of the base of my spine, going all the way down into Mother Earth, into the iron crystal core of Mother Earth, and anchoring really well into her crystal core. So be grounded. We are part of the Earth. Our bodies are part of the Earth. Our spirits are part of the sky. We didn't talk about our spirits, but that's the other part of us, our consciousness. Our spirit is is the is our amazing imagination is our amazing capacity to think beyond the norm beyond the day to day to inquire to be inquisitive to to find answers from all these amazing um possibilities from the quote that I started with about that we are so capable of doing these grand things. And sometimes we just don't stretch our minds so much, our spirit. But feel your spirit side, if you will, your mind going up to the sky and into the cosmos and really connecting with with whatever your belief may be, all that is, connecting with the myriad possibilities of life. And take a breath. You know, we we are here on this earth, on this planet, part of the star systems. We are so connected with everything, and we forget that in our daily life. Many times, not always. So bring yourself back to that awareness that you're connected to Mother Earth and all of the wildlife and all of the plants and minerals and microbes that exist on this planet, you are connected. And feel those connections. Feel, if you will, maybe little energetic arms, little ribbons of energy coming out from you and going to everything on the earth, all the wildlife, all the plants, everything that exists, all the people. And then take a breath and also see your connection to every star in the sky and all the galaxies and all the billions and billions of stars that, like Carl Sagan said, 
There are billions and billions out there. It's all part of who you are. It's all part of your mission here on the world, on the earth. So realize this connection is here and feel it. And I invite you to just feel the peace, the serenity that comes from that. From standing still, if you will, and yet being connected to everything. This is an opportunity to feel that your place in the cosmos, your place in the world. It's not insignificant. It's actually very significant. Yes, you're one of many. But you also have choice. You also have power. You also have purpose. And I invite you to feel your purpose. And really feel your purpose. (laughs) In other words... You may be a teacher in a school or you may be an executive in a, in a company. You may be a worker building something or making it, manufacturing an item. And all of those are beautiful purposes. I invite you to look at the connections, though, of your purpose to everything else. Why are you here? And as you answer those questions, and maybe not all the answer comes to you right now, that is a reflective question and can take much time finding those answers. But in your why are you here, I invite you also to look at why is life here on the planet? Everything is connected as we just felt. So feel that connection of everything has a reason to be here. Everything has a purpose. Everything is, is, the, is part of that machinery of life. You know, every everything is a part of the woven tapestry of the world. So know you are a thread on it. And so is every animal, every plant, every mosquito, <laughs> every drop of water, every atom of oxygen. It's all part, all together. And I invite you to go to your local zoo or aquarium and have feel the connections and also have the discussions about how we are all connected and how we can walk lightly on the earth. So I invite you to walk lightly on the earth and come up with your own values and community dialogue to say, how can I achieve that? How can we make a more peaceful world? How can we come together in unity to find those answers of walking lightly lightly and respectfully with each other as humans, your neighbor, your boss, your friend, your government, uh, the governments around the world and the people around the world. How can we work together to make the earth be a more, more thriving home for all of us? So take a breath. Bring yourself back to the room, open your eyes, and I thank you for tuning in to the Peace Brain Show today with my guest Nevin Lash and talking about peace with zoos and aquariums. So do please go patronize your local zoo or aquarium. They are doing great work. They are making a difference. Um, Their animals are ambassadors for those wild ones that can't speak for themselves. And we need to give them all a voice for nature speaks loudly when she wants to and needs to be protected. So thank you again for tuning in to the Peace Brain Show. I invite you to go create your own peace park, your own place to walk in nature and to have these types of dialogues with your community, with your workplace, uh, with your colleagues or your neighbors, and put your peace park on our World Peace Trails map. Uh, you can go to worldpeacetrails.com and find out more about that. And again, you can find out more about me, Dr. Gail Lash, at tourismforpeace.com and all of our services. And if you have any questions, you can email me at hello at peacebrain.org. So please go forth and activate your peace brain and have a beautiful day. Many blessings. Namaste.
you for joining us on the Peace Brain Show. You can find us at tourismforpeace.com. Be sure to check out Dr. Gale's Akashic Records readings, her peace master plans for your business or organization, and her book, Hashtag Opt for Peace, Nine Essential Steps to Achieving Peace, Power, and Prosperity. Tune in to BBS Radio, Station One, every other Wednesday at 6 p.m. Pacific and 9 p.m. Eastern to the Peace Brain Show for your installment of wonder, inspiration, and practical peace.